Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 652 for the 21st of July, 2019. This week, you might be surprised by the price of the best camera in the world, but extensive research and testing have revealed that it probably costs less than you would expect. In short circuits, if your Windows 10 computer seems slow, it might be the result of having too many applications open in the background. Far too many developers think their apps should run all the time, but it's easy to turn off the ones you don't want. Police departments are using social media, and some have even developed apps for mobile phones with the objective of making people aware of police activities. In spare parts, only on the website, sudden panic about a photo app that's been around for a couple of years is unwarranted, but it does raise some valid questions. Youngstown is about to lose its newspaper, and an experiment in electronic journalism will take its place. And a new round of idiocy is circulating on Facebook, calling for people to copy and paste some word salad text to keep Facebook from using their photos. As with most of these, it is clearly a fraud. You say you want a better camera? Well, after much research, I have identified the best camera in the world. Is Nikon better than Canon, or should you buy a Sony? Is it better to have interchangeable lenses? How about more megapixels? Should you trade in your cropped sensor camera for one with a full-frame sensor? Maybe you've pondered some of those questions, and determining the right answer isn't made any easier by the manufacturers. So what is the best camera in the world? The answer might be easier than you think. I own several cameras of varying ages and with varying sensor sizes, megapixel counts, size factors, and interchangeable lenses. The one I choose to take along generally depends on where I'm going and what I'll be photographing. Now let's consider six primary questions when you're trying to identify a camera for you. Do you need more megapixels? Megapixels was about the only thing that camera manufacturers talked about in the early days of digital photography. That'd be the late 1990s and early 2000s. Megapixels were king, and some manufacturers even made up pixels by interpolating low-resolution files to create more apparent pixels that really didn't exist. Fortunately, that doesn't happen anymore. Even cameras in smartphones today deliver 20 megapixels or more. 30 and 40 megapixel cameras are common, and some high-end cameras, those in the $50,000 price range, exceed 100 megapixels. And those who want nothing more than a nice 60 by 40 inch canvas print for the wall will have no trouble at all achieving that goal with a 20 megapixel image, or even less. If you're a fashion or food photographer who depends on pixel-perfect images that involve a lot of pixel-level editing, Eh, you may need more. So the bottom line for pixels these days, who cares? Just about any camera on the market has more than you'll need. Second, Nikon, Canon, or somebody else. In the early days of digital photography, choices were pretty easy. 
camera manufacturers like Nikon and Canon made digital cameras that looked and felt like traditional cameras. Electronics manufacturers such as Sony, Ricoh, and Epson made electronic devices that took pictures. Longtime film photographers generally felt a lot more comfortable using cameras from brands that they understood. That has been changing in recent years. Sony now manufactures what many consider to be the best sensors, and most of the cameras Nikon manufactures have Sony sensors. Canon still makes its own sensors, but Sony is reported to be the source for about half of the sensors found in today's cameras and nearly three-quarters of the sensors in smartphones. Electronics manufacturers have also put considerable effort into developing the right look and feel for cameras. Sony in particular has a standardized menu structure that is virtually identical across most of their camera line. Canon and Nikon still manufacture cameras that have substantial menu differences between models. So for me, the manufacturer is considerably less important now than it once was. What's still important is finding a camera that fits your hand and just feels right when you're holding it. Third, are interchangeable lenses necessary? Well, interchangeable lenses, and I love interchangeable lenses, provide a great deal of flexibility, but they also add complexity and weight. Many advanced point-and-shoot cameras have zoom lenses that range from moderate wide angle in the 20 to 25 millimeter equivalent for a 35 millimeter camera to moderate telephoto out to around 200 millimeter equivalent on a 35 millimeter film camera. This range is sufficient for most uses. Cameras like these often weigh less than a pound and they're small enough to fit in a tiny case. When an extreme wide-angle view, or more than a moderate telephoto view, is essential to what you're trying to accomplish, you'll need a more complex camera. A Canon EOS 80D, for example, weighs nearly two pounds without a lens, and the lenses range from well under a pound for small fixed-length lenses to more than four pounds for a 150 to 600 millimeter telephoto zoom lens. Carry a camera body and a few lenses around for a day, and you will remember that effort with very little fondness the next day. So today's point-and-shoot cameras with zoom lenses are well worth checking, unless you need the flexibility that can be achieved only with extra lenses. And fourth, here's the tricky one. How about a full sensor camera? If you have or are considering a digital SLR, one that looks like a 35mm film camera, you might be wondering whether you should have a cropped sensor camera or a full sensor camera. In fact, no sensor is a cropped sensor camera. That bit of nonsense is a holdover based on those who used to shoot 35mm film. Some cameras have sensors that are the same size as the 35mm film negative, that's 36mm by 24mm, and these are what many of us mistakenly refer to as full sensor, while smaller sensors, the APS-C format for example, became known as a cropped sensor. But wait a minute. Using that logic, 35mm film should have been considered to be a cropped format based on cameras that used roll film. And roll film cameras should have been considered to be cropped when compared to 4x5-inch view cameras. They would then be considered cropped compared to a 5x7-inch view camera, and those would be considered cropped compared to an 8x10-inch view camera. So it's probably better not to think about 
cropped and full sensor. Whatever the size of the sensor in a digital camera, it is a full frame sensor based on the lens. Now that's not to say sensor size makes no difference. Larger sensors have larger photo sites, and larger photo sites generate less digital noise in the resulting images. But APS-C and even smaller sensors, such as those found in phones, can have as many pixels as those found in full-frame, quote-unquote, sensors. The right way to determine whether a given sensor size will be adequate for your needs involves visiting a site like DP Review and examining images submitted by people who are using the camera you're considering. It's also important to keep in mind that larger sensors mean larger, heavier, and more expensive cameras and lenses. APS-C cameras have what's called a multiplier effect when compared to 35mm film cameras or to digital cameras that use a sensor the size of 35mm film. A 50mm lens on a camera with an APS-C sensor will yield a field of view similar to a 75 or 80mm lens compared to the field of view on a camera with a 35mm film sensor. The attempt to compare lens lengths with 35mm cameras that many people were familiar with had the unintended consequences of leading to all that talk about cropped sensors. So the bottom line here, the right sensor for you is the one that comes with the camera that suits your needs. Fifth, RAW or JPEG? Although I almost always set my cameras to shoot RAW mode, I'm not a fanatic who calls JPEG shooters fools. The unquestioned advantage of RAW files is the data from the sensor is stored without any interpretation by the camera. The unquestioned disadvantage of RAW files is that data from the sensor is stored without any interpretation by the camera. If you compare a RAW image to a JPEG image that the camera processed for you, the RAW file will appear flat, desaturated, and unsharp. So why would anybody want to shoot in RAW mode? Raw images always need post-production processing. If your goal is simply to get good pictures that need little or no work when you get them back to the computer, JPEG is a good choice. The problem with JPEG, though, is that you can't do much to fix the image if the camera's processing is wrong. Slight changes to exposure are possible, and to a lesser extent, slight changes to color balance. But because JPEG files have been compressed and simplified, your photo application simply doesn't have access to the data needed for more significant changes. JPEG is often a good choice for news and sports photographers who need to submit images for use immediately. That's because it eliminates the need for post-processing. Many news and sports photographers use cameras that can save both RAW and JPEG images for each exposure. That gives them images they can use immediately, while retaining all of a RAW file's options for subsequent improvements. So here's my suggestion. Try shooting RAW and try shooting JPEG. See which you prefer, and then stick with that one most of the time, except when switching makes sense. And although you can't hear it on the podcast, if you're looking at the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll notice that JPEG is capitalized and RAW isn't. Why is that? Well, JPEG, J-P-E-G, is an acronym for Joint Photographic Experts Group. That's the organization that invented the format in 1992. Acronyms and initialisms are capitalized in U.S. English, so it's capital J, capital P, capital E, capital G, instead of all lowercase letters. 
RAW, on the other hand, is simply a description of a file type. Each camera manufacturer has its own RAW format, and each is proprietary. So maybe it's kind of like the difference between bourbon, which is capitalized, and liquor, which isn't. And the sixth point to consider, should you shoot only in manual mode? It's actually a two-part question. Part one, should the camera offer manual mode? Yes, it should. Second, should you use only manual mode? No, you shouldn't. Cameras that offer full manual mode are usually more expensive than those that don't, but this is a good feature to have because it allows the photographer to control the shutter speed, the lens's f-stop or aperture, and the sensor's sensitivity or ISO. So if a camera with full manual settings is in your price range, the choice is easy even if you use manual mode rarely. Some photographers, mostly those who have never made a living with photography, will say that the camera should be switched to manual mode and left there permanently. Well, that's nonsense. Today's cameras have extraordinarily good automation systems, and they'll be right most of the time. Program mode is what I use most often, switching occasionally to aperture or shutter priority, and switching even less frequently to full manual. Here's an example. I wanted to take some pictures of a Little League game, and I wanted some of the photographs to freeze the ball in the air as it approached the batter. I knew the camera's automation would have selected a setting too slow to catch the ball in flight, so I used manual mode to set a 1 1,000th of a second shutter speed. I sacrificed a bit of depth of field with a 5.6 aperture and matched those with an ISO of 500 out in bright sunlight to get good exposure. The key is to recognize when the automation won't deliver what you're looking for, and then understanding which manual settings will. There are lots of YouTube videos that teach these skills. So on this question, just stick with program mode most of the time, but make an effort to learn when the camera's automation will misjudge the situation. And I promised the best camera in the world. Well, it's kind of a trick answer. The best camera in the world is the one you have in your hand. No matter what camera you own, it's useless if it's not in your hand. You may have shelled out $48,000 for a Hasselblad H6D400C camera, 100 megapixels per image, and you may have bought a lens or two with that camera body. Lenses range from about $3,000 to $96,000 each. But if that camera and all of the lenses are at home, and all you have with you is a smartphone with a built-in camera, the camera in the smartphone is the best camera in the world. Photography is more about creativity, composition, and vision than it is about hardware, megapixels, and brand names. More expensive hardware will yield better technical quality. But just about any camera sold today will have the quality necessary unless you're shooting high-end fashion or food images for use in advertising. So get out there with the best camera in the world and make some images. In short circuits, if your computer seems to be slower than it should be, now would be a good time to see what applications are needlessly running in the background. It's helpful to have some background apps running, but far too many developers believe that their application should be one of them. It's time to take control of your own computer. 
Let's take a look at what's running. Open Settings, then type Background in the search panel and choose Background Apps from the list. You'll probably be amazed by the applications listed there. In my case, literally dozens of applications were set to run in the background, from 3D Builder and 3D Viewer, which I never use, to the Xbox Console Companion and the Xbox Game Bar, which I also never use. Turning off most of these background applications will have just one effect. Your computer will be faster. Those unneeded background apps will drain a laptop's computer battery, waste bandwidth on a computer that's attached to the Internet, and needlessly consume system resources. There's an option at the top of the list to turn off all background applications. That's not a good idea, though, because Edge, if you use it, OneNote, and some other applications will work more efficiently if you do allow them to run in the background. Most applications don't need to, though, so you can turn those off. Turning off the background application doesn't change the way the application runs when it has focus. If it has the computer's attention, it has the computer's attention. Consider Solitaire, for example. Why would you want that application to consume resources when you're not playing the game? It'll open a little bit faster, a few milliseconds, if it's running in the background, but it will also slow all other running applications, even when you're not playing the game. I leave background processes for Mail and Calendar, Messaging, Messenger, OneNote, and Windows Security running. And I turn off the other 40-plus applications that would really like to run in the background. And the difference? The computer is noticeably faster. Police departments have started using social media, perhaps in an effort to let people know that most police officers aren't monsters. Some are, of course, and they usually are the ones that we hear about. So Twitter, Facebook, and even custom-built apps are being used to communicate with citizens. Bangor, Maine, population about 32,000, has one of the best-known police pages on Facebook. The department posts the usual advisories for citizens, but they also have a stuffed duck in a case, and people from all over show up at the Bangor Police Department to have their picture taken with it. Summer is peak duck time, PDT. And, of course, the duck of justice is busy. On the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, you'll see a picture from one of their recent Facebook posts. The description says, We are at PDT, peak duck time, right now. From this point through Labor Day, we find ourselves entertaining guests in the lobby for the sake of keeping them off the street. Most haven't even been drinking. I have a question about these two. Thanks for stopping by and getting your duck on. Keep your hands to yourself, leave other people's things alone, and be kind to one another. We'll be here. So as of the 16th of July, 303,351 people are following the police Facebook presence for the Bangor Police Department. That's about 10 times the population of Bangor. Other police departments occasionally use humor to make a point, but the department in Bangor reflects a light and positive attitude even with serious posts, such as the one that recognized a citizen for saving someone's life following a shooting. I've included a link to that post on the TechBiter Worldwide website.
Closer to home, the Columbus Police Department routinely posts photos of officers doing good things on its Facebook presence, along with the alerts that we typically expect from the police. The Columbus Police Facebook page has nearly 129,000 followers in a city of 900,000 people and a metro area of 2.1 million, so not exactly on par with Bangor. Recently, the department released an app for Android and iOS devices. There are sections for alerts, media releases, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts, recruiting, contact information, substation locations, and more. It's a new app. There are many opportunities for improvements. The alerts page, for example, is often blank, and the substation map should display an address in addition to the zone information. Still, it's a start. The more information police can provide to citizens, the better, whether amusing or serious. You don't need a police department app or an app of any kind to view spare parts, but you do need to visit the website. This week, sudden panic about a photo app that's been around for a couple of years is unwarranted, but it does raise some valid questions. Youngstown is about to lose its newspaper, and an experiment in electronic journalism will take its place. And a new round of idiocy is circulating on Facebook, calling for people to copy and paste some word salad text to keep Facebook from using their photos. As with most of these, it is clearly a fraud. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.